Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Matthew 12, we'll pick up in verse 22. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him, so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw, and all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. So the context of this is, Jesus has been dealing with the presumptions of John the Baptist's followers and the Pharisees, people that are zealous for the Lord on one side and people that are kind of cold and hard-hearted on the other side. But he's got criticism from both sides coming in, and they are the two opposite sides of the faith community in the first century, and both sides aren't happy with Jesus. And it's remarkable that it still happens today. Um, Jesus doesn't do what they think he should do in chapter 11 with the fasting, and then he does do the things they think he shouldn't do in chapter 12 by healing on the Sabbath. So we've got these, this is the rising resistance to the message of Jesus Christ. And the message has been, repent, there's a new kingdom of God that does not bow to the kingdoms of this world, and that, that, that serve at the feet of Jesus as Messiah. Um, so Jesus has been responding to the Pharisees, and I love the beginning of chapter 12. I, I, I sat on it all week last week. Jesus walked into their synagogue and walked out with their congregation. Like, amazing. He goes in, heals a guy, he shows that they're hypocrites, and they're, and they're just standing there as Pharisees with no congregation left in front of them. And that's what should happen in response to Jesus, is that in response to Jesus, people should leave whatever religious community they're in so that they can follow Jesus and be in a community that's alive and at his feet, and serving the Lord. So uh, this is not a small historical moment. Imagine if Jesus, if the Pharisees accepted Jesus, and he was able to work with the nation of Israel. It would have changed the entire course of human history. We wouldn't have Judaism and Christianity today. We would just have Judaism, right? So the, the way in which Jesus comes in, and the way he, he tells them before it happens, you're not going to be able to put new wine into, you got to put new wine into new wineskins, and the Pharisees represent an old wineskin, a, a religious system that's calcified, and they've hardened, and they're going to crack when new stuff comes along the, the road. So the multitudes just follow Jesus. This is infuriating the Pharisees, and they're getting more and more bold about resisting Jesus, which is what we see in these first verses. So the multitudes see something that's actually real and authentic. They see the power of Jesus, and they recognize that he's just, merciful, and, and gentle. God's not this horrible God that the Pharisees are presenting to the people. He's a gentle God, and he loves, and he makes an invitation. So when we see demon-possessed showing up in verse 22, um, we know this, isn't, this is one step beyond what happened in chapter 9 with the mute demon. The mute demon was not blind, but it was violently possessed by a demon to where people recognized that they were demon-possessed. 
The Pharisees, I said back in chapter 9, have this belief that if you know a name of a demon, you can command it to come out by using that name. And it was, and they had, like, if you look into rabbinic teaching, they, they taught that you could do ceremonies, you could do incense, there were magical incantations. They were almost getting pagan with their exorcism rituals. They were large and elaborate rituals to get rid of demons, and they were largely ineffective because everywhere Jesus goes, there's demon-possessed people. So the Pharisees are not acting in the power of God. God's not kicking demons out for them. Uh, and they're doing more and more human-made stuff to try to build a ornate system that doesn't have any spirit at the bottom of it. And God's uh, not blessing them. So if the demon's mute, it can't say its name. If it's mute and blind, it can't even watch or read lips. Right? So Jesus just comes up, demons cast out. Um, and the other piece of rabbinic teaching was they taught that the Messiah could cast out any demon. So a blind and mute demon that just got cast out, they've been teaching for years that when that happens, that's the Messiah. So this is why in verse 23, the multitudes taught by the Pharisees immediately say, could this be the son of David? And it's not clear who they're asking. But it may be that they're asking the Pharisees because that was their old teacher, right? So when they see this happen, they're like, is this the Messiah? Because you've been teaching me for years that the Messiah can cast out all demons, even the ones that are uncast outable. So only the Messiah can cast out a demon from a blind and deaf person. That's the only one who can do it. So when they ask that, it shows the supernatural authority of Jesus that the priest just didn't have. And they go to them, and, and then they give a response. So it's likely a conversation between the multitudes and the Pharisees. Spiritually, Messiah opens the eyes to, to everybody. So it's not like we weren't blind and dumb before we were saved. We were blind, and we were dumb in a spiritual sense. So what he's doing here is the same thing he does for us. Um, and then the result is when our eyes are opened and we understand the word, and our mouth speaks, we speak his praises, we get a new spirit in us. And it's an amazing, powerful thing that only the Messiah can do. So, and we get to the word Beelzebub. What exactly are they saying? This fellow does not, by the way, fellow is not exactly a complimentary term. Um, they're not being nice to Jesus. Before they're calling him teacher, and later they'll call him teacher sarcastically. Uh, but here they're not so tender about it. Maybe because Jesus isn't here for this conversation, but some of his followers hear it. I don't know. But his fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub. The word Beelzebub in the Hebrew means dung god or lord of the flies that would fly over dung. So they're basically, this is the highest or most powerful of all the demons. In Jewish tradition, it's another name for Satan. So like we say the devil and we say Satan and we mean the same thing. Beelzebub would be another name for Satan. He does this by the power of Beelzebub, the ruler of demons, who would be Satan. Um, so what's interesting here is that, and, and I think we need to know this for apologetics, there's no question of the fact that the demon was cast out. Nobody's doubting the power of Jesus at any level here. And, and, and they don't. It takes 200 years before anybody says, ah, Jesus never did those miracles. Because it took that much distance from the miracles for people to actually buy that argument. But there is no evidence anywhere in the first or the second century that Jesus' miracles were in doubt because he did them so publicly with so many people um, that they were recognized in that sense. Nobody questioned the power of Jesus. What gets questioned is who gave him that power. Either it's God Almighty or it's Satan because it's that level of power that's being exhibited. 
So he's not the king of Israel. He's the king of poop is the, is the, the, the attack that they're bringing at his doorstep. This is not good. So it amounts to an accusation of sorcery because if you're doing things under the power of Satan, that's called sorcery. Um, so chapter 12, verse 14, they are planning to destroy Jesus. And in this verse, they're executing that plan because they're accusing him of something that would be worthy of the death penalty under the law if he's conducting sorcery under the power of Satan. So Jesus takes the accusation, and, I, and, the, and this, is, this is where we learn how Jesus just responds to it. He just brings it right back to the kingdom. And he, he doesn't deal with the debate or the bickering. He goes right back into talking about this new kingdom that's here. Um, so, and then before I move on with verse 25, it's important to note this is the last miracle that Jesus is going to perform for the Jews. That as we move forward here, the miracles that are to come are not necessarily for just the Jewish people. He does them for the Gentiles and whatever. It's a huge turning point historically. And Jesus walks away from going to the Pharisees and the synagogues, and he starts going right to the people themselves. Um, and this, by the way, what's coming is his last attempt at reasoning with religious leaders because he finds that they're unreasonable and they're not, he can't talk to them. So, but this is his last attempt. And the fact that he's even making attempts goes back to his mercy. When a God of mercy and love that speaks in truth and grace, when he makes an attempt to convince the Pharisees, it means he loves them and he wants them to be convinced. So it's not that he's adversarial with them. He's actually trying to convince them otherwise, but they won't see it. Verse 25, But Jesus knew their thoughts, and he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Jesus casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will this kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. <laughs> I love what Jesus is doing theologically here, but these are often verses that get pulled out of context. For instance, dads that are in an argument with their wife will pull out verse 25. Hey, if our house is divided, we're not going to stand, which is not what Jesus is talking about here. Um, the, it, what he's talking about is response to these Pharisees. So he knew their thoughts. That's remarkable. Um, it could be Jesus was just good at reading angry people. Um, but that's, I think Matthew's presenting the idea that he could read minds. Jesus gives three reasonable responses to their attack. Three questions that all have obvious answers. One is Satan wouldn't fight himself. Two, you also do exorcisms. And three, God has every reason to bind, bind Satan. Like that's the point of what happens here. So he gives three completely reasonable arguments. Each one, I think, has something to teach us. Verse 26 is the first one. How then will his kingdom stand? Um, it doesn't make any sense for Satan to be casting out Satan's minions. It, 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 it is, if it's some sort of mind game or fluke, what good would it do for Satan to do this? Even if he was working with Jesus to promote Jesus, why would he do that? Why wouldn't he use Jesus to put more demons into people? In defense, then, Jesus uses clear and obvious reason. He uses his mind. He doesn't do a miracle for them. He uses his words and calm, dis disciplined logic that Satan just wouldn't cast out Satan. And I just love how it cuts through the muck. Um, so he, 
in our language, he's questioning the motive. Like there's no motive for this, this crime you're accusing me of. There's no motive for it. There's no reason to do it. And that's part of an accuser's job is to explain the motive. Explain motive means an opportunity. And, and, and that's not happening. Um, Spurgeon says, whatever faults the devils have, they're not at strife with each other. That fault is reserved for the servants of a better master. It's the church that always finds fault with each other. But Satan that never, we don't see that in Satan's kingdom. Satan's kingdom is pretty well unified around bringing people away from worship of God. So Jesus speaks of a kingdom in his response. How then will these kingdoms stand? If you think about that, that means that there are two kingdoms because he's already talked about the kingdom of heaven and now he's talking about a kingdom of Satan. That there are opposing spiritual forces in the world that are in, at odds with each other. And this implies when you say kingdom that Satan's kingdom is organized, it has a purpose, and there's a structure of authority there. And we see that in other places of the Bible too. I'm not going to do a whole demonic study right now, but the, just the implication of Jesus saying that there's a kingdom there and how would that kingdom stand if it was fighting itself means there's a kingdom there. Um, and, and so verse 25 is the second argument he makes. By whom do your sons cast them out? So there were Jewish exorcists. They were largely harmless. They really weren't that effective. But there were, they were there and they were common in the first century, um, not as common today. Um, but Jesus was new in that he was effective at doing things that took all that ceremony for them. So the second argument is, you're kind of being hypocritical because your sons, you, cast out demons, and they're not doing that against Satan's will or for Satan's will. So why would you think that if they're casting out demons and I'm casting out demons, why wouldn't you assume we're on the same team? Um, so he basically points at the, the hypocrisy of the argument. Again, reason, motive, hypocrisy, in that you're not being consistent and holding yourself to the same standards you're holding me to. Evil often holds people to different standards than it holds itself. Uh, and we see that all over the place. Um, the fact that they're accusing Jesus of superstition and sorcery, and you look at the rituals that the Jews had, there's a lot of superstition and sorcery around those things. And those superstition and sorceries have started to come back up, especially with the Catholic Church. They do exorcisms and there's large ornate sequences and ceremonies that go with their exorcisms that Jesus never conducted and his disciples never did. But the more ineffective you are at something, the more you start believing in superstition when you may have minor successes, right? So maybe your baseball team won this week and you were wearing a pair of socks. So next time you go see a baseball game, you want to wear the same pair of socks. And eventually that superstition builds out into codified practices. And that's what had happened with the Jews. It's what has happened with the Catholics. Um, but when God is there, Satan doesn't have authority anymore. So they're, they're instantly cast out, and they're cast out with a word. So likely the Pharisees envy Jesus' power in these situations, and they, um, and they get frustrated when they see it happen. So the third argument. How can one enter without binding up the strong man? This is a really cogent argument. If Jesus is going to build a new kingdom with all the souls that he's there, in order to win those souls, he has to bind up the enemy before that soul can be free. And this is, again, what Jesus is doing here is what he's, doing, he's done for all of us. At some point or another, evil lost its grip on us. The strong man had to be tied up 
for that soul to be freed. So Jesus is saying, I actually have motive and means and, and opportunity to do the opposite of what you're saying. God has every reason to cast demons out because I want a Holy Spirit to fill these souls. And for me to do that, I have to make the exchange. I have to bind Satan in order for the Holy Spirit to have free reign on a soul. Now, I just think it's, again, he's laying out these three simple arguments. The analogy shows Jesus is simply more powerful and he's doing a work of kingdom building and he's taking territory and the kind of territory Jesus is taking for the kingdom are souls. It explains everything we see in Roman and Jewish histories of widespread demon possession and why we just don't have that in Christian societies today. We don't have widespread demon possession because the influence of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit has pervaded societies. As a nation or a culture walks away from God, we see a rise in demon possession. It's just a trade-off of territory in souls. So that guy walking out in front of our coffee shop the other week or whatever, that's the kind of culture we live in, is that those people, like, like flies that are actually drawn to things other than dung, flies are also drawn to the light. And they'll try to harass and harangue and disrupt and be a, a distraction for what's going on when you study the word. But Jesus takes territory. He asks his disciples to do the same thing. And kingdom building is one, store, one soul at a time. And that's what God's plundering. So it says to plunder his house. He's taught his would be Satan, but for God to come in, Satan has laid claim on the souls of humanity. Jesus is laying claim back. And Jesus' claim is a stronger claim. So Jesus' power is moving. And look at how he gives credit to the Spirit of God in verse 29. He's modeling for his disciples because when Jesus is gone, his disciples are going to cast out demons too and they're doing it in the spirit of God and that's the same way that Jesus does it. But my point is, Jesus is modeling how to do it for his disciples without leveraging his own power. He's telling his disciples by showing them, I can leverage the power of the Holy Spirit to do this, which is also God in, incarnate. So verse 31 brings up blasphemy. The Pharisees don't just ignore Jesus because Jesus is doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit. They're ignoring what the Holy Spirit is doing that is good. So they're actually blaspheming. So um, I think this is interesting because what he's also modeling for his disciples is that they're not just rejecting them. They're rejecting the Lord God Almighty and they're rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit. So if you're actually against somebody being freed from a demon, you're rejecting what's holy and what God's doing on this earth. That's a really horrible position to be in and to be blinded by what you're doing. The Lord said the same thing to Samuel in 1 Samuel 8. Um, I love that we do the evening Bible study too. 1 Samuel 8, he tells Samuel, uh, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. They haven't rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them through Samuel. And I think that's what's going on here too. They're not just rejecting Jesus here. They're rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit that we all have access. Same Holy Spirit then as today. So we have access to the same Holy Spirit. When you put that down or you diminish the power of God in our lives, that's a dangerous premise to take on. So I, I like that Jesus gives three reasonable arguments and then basically lays this out like, watch out Pharisees, you're crossing a line here. 
because you're not just rejecting me and my kingdom, which is going to be proved with the resurrection. You can, we can deal with you later. Lots of people got saved after the resurrection, but you're rejecting what's holy and good, which is this guy who was violently possessed by a demon is now free. This guy that was blind now sees. The guy that was dumb can now talk. And you're rejecting that that's a good thing through the Holy Spirit. And that's a, then he gets to verse 30 and he shifts gears. He shifts from trying to teach the Pharisees, but by seeing their heart, now he gets into judgment. He's going to pass judgment here. Verse 30, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. If you're not with me, you're going to scatter. I think it's interesting. The sides get drawn and Jesus makes a clear, unequivocal line here. It's really easy to understand. So there's an appeal for everybody, but from here forward, Jesus speaks in parables. He speaks in such a way that the blind won't be able to see and the people that don't understand him with soft hearts won't be able to understand the parables. So previously, he's taught very kind of openly and clearly. Um, so there's an open invite and, it, and he gets this new nation ready to go. God divides the world into these two categories. I, I, I just want to dwell on that for 30 seconds. You're either with Jesus or you're not, right? Two categories of human beings. There's the godly and there's the ungodly. You're, you're against Jesus, but then you're either with him or against him. But also the opposite of scattered at the end of the verse is gathered. You're either gathered with Jesus or you're scattered. So this is one of those passages that's been really important as they've been shutting churches down and telling them to go digital. Because one of the commands is if I don't gather with Jesus, I'm scattered abroad. And to be scattered and think that digitally we're somehow together, I'm just going to say, like, we can talk about this afterwards, and maybe there's people who want to argue about this, but we see multiple occasions in the Bible where the people of God are told to gather face-to-face, together. And remote study like that is not what we're commanded to do. But the world really pushes something like that. So it's an interesting kind of position that Jesus takes here. There's no neutrality. There's no such thing as being passive. You have to deal with the question of Jesus. And what the enemy wants to do is get people to just not ask that question for as long as possible. And then if they do get the question, just silence it and harden your heart against it. But what the Holy Spirit does is it softens the heart to finally ask the question, can I accept Jesus as Lord and repent of my sins or not? And if you don't come to the feet of Jesus, you are scattered. You're all over the place, but you're not where you need to be, where you can find that peace. So it elevates the essential nature of gathering in the church right at the same time that it elevates the essential duality of a decision that has to be made or dichotomy, right? Where the two or three are gathered in my name, Matthew 18, there I am in the midst of them. So the definition of gathering with Jesus is two or three more people getting together in the name of Jesus. And, and, and if we're not doing that, we can't expect the Holy Spirit to be with us. There's no such thing as a maverick Christian that just does things in their closet at home all by themselves forever and ever and ever. We can pray in our closet at home, but we're also told to gather. So we're told that multiple times. So not only is this rejecting Jesus, but to call it evil is to actually blaspheme, which is what they're accusing Jesus of doing. So this is, when you accuse somebody of something that you're actually doing, we call that hypocrisy, right? And that's, so they're, so when they're called hypocrites and Jesus lays all this out, he's actually making the case that they are in fact hypocrites by definition. They're putting, they're acting, they're putting on a fake face, um, and they're accusing people of stuff that they're doing. 
So, but the opposite is then true too. If we're with God when we gather, when we don't gather, then we're not with God and there's no guarantee that Jesus will show up if we're not gathered. So there's this, suddenly you start to see the kingdom of God being built from this very foundational rock. Choose Jesus, gather with other believers. And that rock or that foundation is what he's going to build his church on. And I, for me at least, it's, what he's doing here is a massive shift in the gospel narrative of Matthew. Is that he's laying out this ultimatum in verse 30. And, and, and it is absolutely at the center of, of what Matthew's talking about. Uh, later the Jews, if you want to look literally, later the Jews do scatter abroad. They aggravate the Roman Empire so much that the Romans slaughter them. And they, it's called the diaspora. They scatter all over the earth, not being with Jesus. Interesting, the Christians don't scatter during that diaspora time. The Romans don't necessarily attack Christians right away. Nero will later. But the Christians don't scatter. They just gather more. And so the kingdom of God that Jesus is building is not affected by the, the AD 70 diaspora as much as the Jewish people were. And so it's, a, it's interesting that, you know, there's an immediate consequence to this, but there's also a principle that we can gain here too. Verse 31. People really struggle. I'm, I'm going to say before I even read this. People really struggle with the idea of an unpardonable sin. But I think knowing the context and doing like this whole section of the chapter at the same time, I think we can get a really clear idea that there is a sin that's unpardonable, and, and we'll see why. Verse 31, therefore, therefore being a consequence, everything that's just been said and done before leads up to what he's about to say. Therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. And when you see men, by the way, read that as humanity. It's, it's a large-scaled Greek term. It means both men and women. Verse 32, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it'll be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. There's no purgatory. Um, blasphemy is ruining someone's reputation with slander. When you, and, and the strong implication of when you do that with divinity, you're ruining the reputation of God with, with a lie. And that is what the Pharisees are doing when they call Jesus a, a Lord of Beelzebub. When they reject, uh, so Jesus has reasoned with them and he calls for them to read the scriptures when he said, if you have read the scriptures and they don't do it. So God isn't necessarily sending people to hell. The, the, the relationship here is that people send themselves to hell by choosing not to pick a path that God has laid out for them. So Satan loves when people ignore thinking and they entertain themselves all the way to hell. They, he loves it. He would rather you be at peace with doing nothing than to deal with the big questions of life. Satan would pick ignorance over intelligence every day of the week. Nonsensical shows, fictional stories. He was building superheroes with the Greek gods and the Roman gods. They were superhero. You even collected action figures. That's why the Ephesians got so upset. Like this idea of distracting ourselves throughout our entire lifetime is absolutely Satan's mechanism. And Satan comes as an angel of light. These are all joyful, fun things to do, but they're empty and they're dead and they're vain. And so this is one of the great struggles of the Christian life is how much time will I spend serving the Lord and how much time will I entertain myself? And what's the equation there and how do I live my life? Sadly, Jesus tells us to seek out our, our faith in fear and trembling and to do that He's going to call us to different works and actions. So we have to sort that out for ourselves. 
but God doesn't send people to hell. The Pharisees here are blaspheming themselves right into hell. They're making a choice to do that. Jesus casts out an evil spirit in the spirit of God. He shows them obvious truths. He calls on them to think, and they choose to go the other direction. They choose to go after fictions, and they're making up things. You know, it's like first century Netflix. But the Holy Spirit's work here is to point hearts to Jesus. There's a multitude listening in on this. And they're hearing the logic and they're understanding it. And not only does Jesus testify to Jesus, but the Holy Spirit's work on this earth is to testify to the glory of Jesus Christ. What the Holy Spirit does in our hearts is it gets us to be awakened to the gift of Jesus Christ. So you can see that having debates about the Jesus is not necessarily a bad thing. But when we start saying, yeah, we're not going to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and rejecting that move in our heart, we're actually rejecting the very thing that's going to sacrifice and propitiate for our sins. Jesus' gift on the cross is what saves us from hell. If we reject it, there's no other path. So when Jesus says there's an unforgivable sin, one way to put that is, well, the unforgivable sin is to choose to not go to heaven. Like, yes, God will honor that choice. And it's not something that he'll, he'll back off on. So God can call us to think. Satan can cause us to not think. Uh, more broadly, um, when we reject Jesus, where the Holy Spirit guides us to him, we're rejecting the Holy Spirit, and that can't be forgiven because we've never asked for forgiveness. It's like when there's a Christmas present under the tree and you just never open it and you decide to let it sit there, which would be torture for a rational-minded person. You want to open the Christmas present and throw wrapping paper all over the place to see what's inside. And what's inside is eternal life. But most people don't even see the presents under the tree waiting for them. And Satan loves that. You never look at it. But then that's the unpardonable sin. You never get the gift because you never open the present. And you've been blinded to it. Notice that Sin, the sin here is not necessarily blasphemy. It says, and again, I, this is where people get confused on this. It says specifically, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. So people say that, well, oh, that there's an unforgivable sin. Actually, to be honest, in verse 31, it doesn't actually say that there's an unforgivable sin, does it? It says, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven men. But the sins we commit, when we break the law, God can forgive all of those things the first half of the sentence. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit, lying about the Spirit, saying that's not God's work going on, well, that can't be God, that's just a bunch of crazy Christians. Like, that's the sort of thing that can't be forgiven because you've hardened your heart at that point. Does that make sense? So against the Son of Man, it'll be forgiven him. We can be ignorant of Jesus. We can be intellectually not convinced by Jesus. We can be irrational about Jesus. All of those things can be forgiven, and we can accept Jesus at any stage of our life. We can just change our mind. It's easy. It's super simple. But when we harden our hearts against the work of God, that's not something that can be abstracted. Because Jesus is an idea. The Holy Spirit is an experience. We've rejected the experience that God gave us to draw us into his presence. So it's a, it's a, Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. The Holy Spirit is the incarnation of God that we experience today, right now. 
anything that God's doing in your heart right now to, to convict you is, is immediate and personal. It's not 2,000 years ago. And then that's the thing that we're rejecting. So there, there are people all over the world that have not heard of Jesus Christ, and God actually has a lot of mercy for that. Um, what, what happens to the, the pygmy in Brazil that never heard, you know, lived their entire life and never heard the gospel? Well, God's smart, and he knows how to handle that. He can forgive those things. And God will sort and divide, and he will do that according to their hearts. And there's a lot more accountability to people that have heard the gospel because that's where the Holy Spirit is moving when you hear that gospel. It says, in this age or the age to come, speaking of two ages of humanity. So again, we get these little nuggets here and there that lead up to what's going to happen at the end of Matthew where Jesus explains the end of days. But there, we live during one era now, and there's going to be another era of human history, and we have eternal souls. So our eternal souls don't go away when we shift from one place to another. There's so many people that feel like they've committed sins that God can't forgive. And this is one of those verses that people will sit on, and they'll live in shame, and Satan can twist this verse. But if you want Jesus in your life, you're exempt from this kind of unforgivable situation. The desire to want Jesus is the opposite of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. It's the desire for Jesus. So the people that think, oh, I can't be forgiven, well, do you want to be forgiven? Well, I'd love that. Okay, you're not in that situation. You're actually desiring the thing God wants you to desire. There is no unforgivable sin. There's only blasphemy around what you see in your life around what the Holy Spirit does. And to reject those things means you've just chosen to go away from God. If they believe Jesus is God, that he's holy, that he's given a gift of life, resurrection, and forgiveness, it is impossible to go to hell. It's impossible. If you call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. And that it's Jesus says it, Paul says it, the disciples say it. Uh, if you think Jesus can't forgive, you're denying his claim that he can. If you think you're so amazing and huge that you committed the one sin God can't forgive, you're, you're idolizing yourself. Who's bigger, you or God? There's nothing you little person can do that God's big, amazing deity can't forgive if he chooses to. So we elevate ourselves, and it's a form of pride that comes out as this false shame humility thing. Well, I'm so unforgivable. God doesn't want me. Who do you think you are? You're not that, you're not that big of an entity that God doesn't want what he has created to come back around to his kingdom. God's bigger than you are, and he's way bigger than any little sins you committed. The only way to reject Jesus is to reject the forgiveness that he offers. And I hope that brings clarity around this unforgivable situation. There is one path to heaven, except Jesus. There is one path to not get to heaven. Reject Jesus and the Holy Spirit that tells you to accept him. And it's a really simple equation that can be taken and made way more complex than that. Um, but it's exclusive language. And I think, again, that's something that in our culture, we have real struggle with anything that's exclusive. It is incredibly exclusive language. One way to heaven, one way to God, one path that works, everything else is scattered. It's just all over the place. But that's the truth of eternity, and that's the message of the Bible. So in verse 33, we get back to trees. He's already talked about trees. Good trees bear good fruit, and bad trees bear 
bad fruit, right? He's already given that concept. Matthew 7, he did that. Um, and now we're going to apply that, that lesson. Verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. So, and, and again, he's still responding to the Pharisees here that just called him a Lord of the, the poop pile, right? He's still responding to that. And he's basically saying like, either I'm good and good things happen or I'm bad and bad things happen. Like you can't have it both ways, Pharisees. So he's passing judgment. Their, their thinking is unclear and he's making it clear again. Um, if Jesus is evil, the Pharisees should be able to point to evil deeds. They should be able to poke to where he broke the law. And they try his whole ministry to find fault in him, and they cannot find fault because he never broke the law. So it's his own testimony. Another way to read verse 33 is that he's talking to his disciples and to the Pharisees, and he's telling humanity how what we should be doing. We should make our tree good, and then good things happen, or we should make our tree evil and bad things happen. Pick one way or the other. I have a brother who basically, if somebody's kind of straying from the Lord, he'll be like, Okay, well, if you're going to stray for the Lord, stray all the way from the Lord. Don't be lukewarm about it. If you want to sin, go sin. Go hang with the sinners and be with the sinners, but don't do this one foot in, one foot out thing. If you don't want to follow God's law, then, then don't. But do it all the way because at least you're hot or cold. and You're not lukewarm. Like If you're going to live life, live it all the way. And I believe that if the truth of God is true, then you going all the way for Satan you're still a lot closer to living all the way for God because you know how to live all the way. And you're not doing the halfway stuff. But Satan loves zombie humans. And he makes them and he produces them and they multiply. And all I got to do is like bite each other and then they become zombies too. And you got whole school systems full of zombie children that listen to the same zombie music. And they think they're rebels because they've been told they're zombie rebels. But they're not. They're not living life at all. They're just going through life day by day bored. So where Jesus was first with the Pharisees, he ignored them. Then he walked away from them. Now he's tried to reason with them. And then in verse 33, he starts to rebuke them. Like, you got to wake up, Pharisees. He wants his priesthood to be on board with the new kingdom. So the heart responds based on what's in the heart. Either we have a hard heart or a soft heart. And what's whether or not our heart hardens or softens is based on the material it's made of, which God made. It's made to soften to God or the environment that we're in. So this is a Jeff Solwald example. You have ice cream. In a freezer, ice cream gets hard. If you put it out in the sun, ice cream melts. And in the presence of the Son of God, our hearts are made to melt. If our hearts are made of brick, too much time in the sun, they'll crack and they'll break. And they, the hard heart doesn't survive well in the presence of the king. It breaks. But a soft heart melts in the presence of the king. The sun's the same, but the material has changed. So this is the kind of idea of the trees and the fruit and what's going on. It's different hearts are going to react differently to the son of God. And that's the reality of it, even for Jesus. This makes me feel better when I witness to somebody and they don't accept Jesus. Like, it's not my fault. It's that their heart is made of something that's not soft to God yet. And all I can do is love that person because I was at one point in my life, I had that heart too. And God's got to do heart surgery. He's got to remove the hard heart and put in a soft, moldable heart. And these are weird metaphors, if, you know, because we actually do heart surgeries and transplants. Um, 
But there's that image of like, the, the, he's pitying the Pharisees. There isn't hatred here. There might be anger that they're so far off course, um, but there isn't, there isn't a hatred. He's still teaching them. So we got three images here. We got the tree and its fruit in verse 33. In verse 34, we're going to have the heart and its speech. And in verse 35, we'll have this kind of treasure chest that has things in it. They're all metaphors for the same idea, but God lets us approach that idea from different angles. The first one being the tree. Good tree, production is good fruit. The next one is you have a mouth, and what comes out of your mouth is like the fruit. But what's in your heart is the tree. And so one way to recognize good and bad people is what they say with their mouth, the importance of our words. Verse 35, judgment, brood of vipers. It's not a nice term, even in the first century. How can you, being evil, speak good things? Holy moly, he just called the Pharisees evil. How did he do that? Because he just explained that what just came out of their mouth is evil. When you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, that's the only sin that doesn't, that's the sin or the, the problem you have with God there is one that can't be forgiven by God because you've hardened your hearts. Brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Major principle. A good man out of the good treasure of his hearth or heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of evil treasure brings forth evil things. You ever seen how people spend their money? Money's not the problem. It's how they spend their money and what they do with what God's given them. Like, are you doing things that bless the kingdom or are you just doing things that make evil grow around the world? Verse 36, but I say to you that for every idle word that men speak, they'll give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words, you'll be justified. By your words, you will be condemned. God won't condemn us because he doesn't like us. He'll take our own words and we will be judged by them with perfect justice. You said this. So I'm just taking what came out of your mouth. And my wife does this to me all the time, right? No, Sean, you said this. And she's usually right. Brood of vipers. In the Greek, that's a generation he's talking about, is the word there, of serpents. In, in, so in the Greek, there's much more connotation that he's talking to just that whole generation of people, everyone in, in his presence. That generation of priests, maybe, is how you could read that. Um, but the Jews then are... Hmm, He's calling them the offspring of serpents, which is what they just accused him of falsely. He truthfully accuses them of the same thing. You're the Lord of the flies. And he's like, no, 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 you're a generation of serpents. You're the offspring of the serpent. And John the Baptist used the same phrase with them. He called them a brood of vipers, which again, just they're evil people. And Jesus rightfully returns the accusation they tried to throw at him by pointing out the truth of the matter that they are actually blaspheming the Lord God Almighty and the works of God, which are good. And he gives them three examples. Good trees are good fruit. Do you think an exorcism is bad fruit? Do you not recognize that the treasure that comes out of me is good and that this demon just got kicked out? So if you're speaking evil and you're saying it's a bad thing to kick demons out, that makes make, it makes you a bad person. And, and that's the truth of it. This is the... The best thing Jesus can do, the best chance these Pharisees have at coming into the kingdom is hearing the truth. They, you can't just love Pharisees into heaven because they'll just keep being Pharisees. At some point, you've got to show them the truth of their evil. And John does, Jesus does this with 
Peter, who's his, one of his beloved disciples, and he says, get behind me, Satan. And Jesus uses this kind of language that what's coming out of your mouth, Peter, is denying the work of the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ. And if you're going to deny that work is good, what's coming out of your mouth is pure evil. And Peter didn't run from God when he was given that accusation. He ran towards God. He repented. And his heart softened and melted again before Jesus. And Peter became one of the great disciples, some of the first generation of Christians that spread the gospel. So when Jesus does the same thing with the Pharisees, I'm thinking his hope is the same as with Peter. When you call somebody evil straight up, they can either respond or they can harden their heart, but there's no, there's no middle ground on that. So Jesus forces the choice, and he points it out. A tree is known by its fruit. This is a specific principle. Some people struggle with this because they call it judgment. You're judging me. You can't judge me. It's not judgment if what I'm telling you comes straight from the word of God. This is God's word. It says this. You're in defiance of that. No judgment on my part has taken place. I'm just speaking the truth of what this is. God says, don't shack up before you're married, right? And if that's God's word, then I didn't have to make a judgment call on it. I can just know what God said and share that with people, which is to become a voice or mouthpiece for God. And I can with confidence say, I'm speaking on behalf of God right now. He says, don't do that. And I love you. I don't want you to go down that path. And I don't want to love you all the way to hell. I want to love you in such a way that you can turn and repent. You can move out today. I got a room in my basement you can stay in. Well, we don't right now because there's no basement. Lisa has a room in her basement you can stay in. Don't keep sinning is what Jesus said to the woman who was accused of adultery. He said, where's your accusers? And they'd all taken off because he scared them off by writing in the sand. And then he's like, go and sin no more. Stop it. And that's the mercy and the grace of God. And I think when he's being this harsh with the Pharisees, it is still mercy and grace because it's the same God. And sometimes people that have hardened their hearts, they need to hear the truth of how evil that is. It is so evil to harden your hearts against good stuff. Man, I'm going to Bible study. I love it. Will you stop telling me about Bible study? Whoa, listen to what you're saying. You're saying Bible study is bad. It's a fruit of God's glory when you can worship with people and when you can study God's word with people and fellowship and eat great barbecue. Those are all good things. Why would you diminish that? Think of what side you just put yourself on. You just grouped with a brood of vipers. That's the, the very essence of evil and the evil things that are brought forth from evil treasure. You're treasuring things that aren't holy, so you're saying bad things about the things that are holy. This is a heavy message, but it's the only way that Jesus had a chance of breaking the hearts of the Pharisees. Because some of those Pharisees went home and thought they had to go to bed that night, and they're looking at the ceiling, thinking about what Jesus said to them, and you know the Holy Spirit's trying to get into that heart. They got to just deal with it. They have to look at themselves in the morning and shave, or maybe they don't shave. I don't know. But you've got to deal with yourself, and that happens in very private, quiet places when the Spirit of God's just whispering to you. And you have to think these Pharisees who studied the Word, the Holy Spirit's just saying, that's the Messiah, that's the Messiah. But they're so caught up that they can't see it, and, and it breaks your heart if you think of it that way. Challenge to Jesus himself. And as with John the Baptist's disciples, Jesus' response was, go and tell, go and tell John the things that you hear and that you see. Tell him what's happening. And this is the same thing he's doing with the Pharisees. Look at what's happening. And don't you recognize this is good stuff? 
But I say to you, verse 36, but I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. And what he's saying is Pharisees just said something fairly idle. Idle means, well, so remember back in chapter 5 when he said, you can kill and break the law, but I'm saying to you that even if you think badly about somebody, you're breaking the law. And then he also said, adultery is breaking the law, but if you even look at people in lust, you're breaking the law. Here he's saying kind of the same thing. Speaking blasphemy is evil, but even speaking idly is breaking the law. Even just not being careful with your tongue. Saying things that hurt instead of things that heal. And this is tough. The Christians wrestle with this. Mature Christians are like, I don't want to ever say anything if it's not about Jesus. Well, okay, you know, because I don't want to speak idly. But if you want to get into somebody's life, sometimes you got to meet them where they're at, which means you do small talk. But you're doing small talk in the name of Jesus because the only reason you're there, and they know who you are, and you're patiently doing small talk with them, and they know darn well it's because you just want to tell them about the gospel. Because when finally conversation comes back to you, all that's coming out about you is what's, what God's doing in your life. But sometimes that means that those idle words, it, it, that's a tough thing for us to define because sometimes that sends Christians into shunning any kind of conversation that's anything but Jesus. And I don't know if that's what this is saying here. It's saying that we need to be thoughtful about what we say and how we say it. And the Pharisees just did it in a very evil way. But a lot of us do it in other ways where we, we're not talking about God in that we haven't even thought about it. And that's idleness. That's emptiness. Um, idle, the word idle in the Greek is, is free from labor or at leisure. You're always at work for the kingdom. You, and, 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 and idleness is, implies in the Greek shunning labor that ought to be done. The Holy Spirit is telling you to say something about the Lord. He is telling you to invite somebody to an event or to Bible study, and then you don't do it. That's idleness. You're shunning labor that you should have been doing. So it follows that. <laughs> if, if you wanted to read it this way, if an evil person out of the evil treasure of their heart brings forth evil things, and then he said the same sentence with good, it follows that we could put idle in there in the same way. An idle man out of idle treasure of his heart brings forth idle things. It's the same principle that he's doing here. But he's saying it's not only don't be evil, don't be idle. And so just the Pharisees are, off, are definitely on the hook here, but you're not off the hook. So just because they're saying evil things and you're saying idle things, they're both not good things. So Jesus portrays this idea that God records every word. Now here's where the Old Testament helps us. We know from the Old Testament the kind of records God keeps. <laughs> so I think that's part of the blessing of the genealogies, the listing of nations, the uh, extensive detail on the sacrifices that we get in Leviticus, is that we know how detailed God is, how much the details matter to God, and what kind of record he actually keeps is meticulous. Every word you say is on a God recording. And when we go to heaven and we have to stand before the Lord, God's got the tape recorder ready to hit play and we got all eternity to listen to it. 80, 90, 100 years, that's nothing in eternity. We will play back our lives unless we know, because it's all about who you know. And you get there and Jesus says, wait, 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 I'll take that tape player. And he pulls the tape out and just trashes the tape. No tape. He's my family. He's in. And it's like going to a nice restaurant and you know the owner, or better yet, your family with the owner. And then the guy says, hey, you guys come to the front of the line, your family. 
you get to come right in. There's no line for you. You don't have to listen to all your stupid words for however long you lived your life. Bypass. Jesus has covered that. Those sins were evil and they were wrong and they were idle, but God gave a sacrifice for that, so that stuff's covered, and you're in direct, directly. So I love the idea that every idle word men speak, you will give an account of it on the day of judgment, and if you read the rest of the gospel, unless Jesus is the person who stands as your, uh, as your uh, advocate, then you don't have to give those. You don't have to, we're not going to get into it because Jesus throws it as far as the east is from the west. It's forgotten. It's gone. It's just not part of the record. But how responsible we should be for our words is a way for us to honor our God. Even if we're forgiven of what we say, we should still think about it. We should still be intentional about what we say and how we say it. And if our words lift, if our words build relationship, and if our words actually call right, right, and wrong, wrong, and sometimes, like with verses 34 through 37, Jesus models for us that sometimes when evil's just in your face and attacking, sometimes you take a stand and you call it evil and you let everybody hear it. Pharisees think they're righteous because they're condemning, but their condemning actually makes them unrightness. Is that a word? Unright unrighteousness? So they're critical. It's like people today critical of every worship style. Wordsmithing theology correcting teachers all the time. Man, that's just hell incarnate. On the other hand, you've got unity in worship, celebrating God's word, enjoying your teachers, overlooking the faults of our brothers and sisters in the kingdom. That's like incarnate heaven. It's the kingdom of God to forgive. And the Pharisees are missing all of that. God's people love to talk about God's word, God's work, and his wonders. And that's what we spend our time on. Then they feared the Lord, they spoke often to one another, and the Lord hearkened and heard, and a book of remembrance was written before them for, for them that feared the Lord. This is in Malachi. It's right at the end of the Old Testament. Malachi 3.16. And they shall be mine, still in Malachi, says the Lord of hosts. And in that day when I make up my jewels, I will spare them. As a man spares his own son that serves him, then you shall return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serves God and him that serves him not. Isn't that what Jesus is saying? At the end of days, there's gems and there's dead wood. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. God takes our words seriously. Typically, people, human beings, just say what they think. So if we just say what we think, and what we think is the representation of our heart, what we say is a pretty good measure of who we are on the inside. And this is where, you know, there's people that live double lives. They talk one way at work, another way at home, and another way at church. And that duplicity or duality all around, remember Jesus said he knew their thoughts with the Pharisees? He knew what was in their heart, and God knows what's in ours. A wholesome tongue, this is all over in the Proverbs, by the way. I just took a couple. Proverbs 15, 4. A wholesome tongue is a tree of life but perverseness breaks the spirit. You ever met somebody who just, after you're done talking with them, your spirit's just broke? That's evil. And other people, you talk with them and you just feel on fire when you're done. This is awesome. That's life. Proverbs 18, 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. So Jesus, you know, got these metaphors from somewhere. He was reading the Old Testament. Nor does just saying the right things save you. Some of the words we say, like confessing Jesus Christ with our mouth, that's actually one of the things God asks of us. It's part of the baptism ceremony. 
we confess the Lord God with our mouth. I always think this is weird. I mean, maybe I'm getting too weird about this. Like, philosophically, why does it matter what comes out of our mouth? But all over the Bible, our words matter. Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's a, it's a double premise condition thing. You have to say it and you have to think it. So they have to be unified. They have to be true or pure. God knows our hearts, but our words are going to be the thing that we have, and that's how God's going to judge us. Man, there's, this is the premise of the Christian faith and the idea between heaven and hell. Whoever guards their mouth and their tongue keeps their soul from troubles. Proverbs 21, 23. Watch your mouth. This is what parents say to their kids all the time. Or what my students used to say to me in the middle school. Damn, Mr. Dickers, watch your mouth. Sorry. Verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, Teacher, we want a sign from you. Oh my goodness. So after getting judged, they try to change the discussion. You see that? <laughs> Let's change topics. Why don't you show us a sign? Show, do a trick for us. So again, the context of what's going on here, Jesus just breaking from the, the Pharisees, the priesthood. John the Baptist wakes up the nation of Israel after 400 years of silence, right? So Malachi and then Greece and Rome happen and God just isn't talking for 400 years through any prophets. Then John the Baptist shows up, repent, the kingdom of heaven is, is coming. And then Jesus shows up. He heals entire towns. He goes through all of northern Israel and heals tons of people. And, and on this day, he's literally healed everybody that's there. And the kingdom of God is here with the idea of repent. The kingdom of God's arrived. And then you get religious leaders blaspheming, slandering. Jesus is claimed a Messiah. They call him Beelzebub. He judges them. Verse 30, he names them as hypocrites. And earth's great hope is not the priesthood. It's this new holy kingdom he's setting up. And the immediate impact is they say, we want a sign from you. Like, think of that in terms of world history. This is, again, a hard-hearted group of people. We just want you to show us. Wh okay. <laughs> My first notes were like, he has just healed an entire town. And they say, show us a sign. Okay. If you didn't see that, you're not going to see anything. And that's kind of how Jesus answers it, right? But this teacher we want, isn't that it? With hard-hearted people, look at what comes out of their mouth. He just said, what comes out of your mouth judges you. Specifically, they come to Jesus and tell him what they want. That is not how to come to Jesus. We come to Jesus and we say, we repent. We're sorry. <laughs> Jesus, what can we do for you, Lord and Savior and King? Uh, the desire to see a sign. A lot of Christians get caught in this thing. Well, I prayed to the Lord about if I should do this or that, and I waited for a sign from the Lord. Well, what sign do you need? The Lord's given you your commands, Right? And so we get a lot of Christians to get really lost in that idea. God so, does speak to us sometimes, but he usually speaks to us when we're busy doing the work he's put in front of us. I want a sign from you is emphatic here. We want to see a sign from you. This is, meditate on that for a second and you think, was the healing so subtle that they were questioning if Jesus did it or not? Well, you don't cast out demons by, by, by the Lord God. You cast them out by Beelzebub. How, it must have been that Jesus was doing, he wasn't doing any ritual ceremony. He didn't do a fancy dance, a little exorcism dance. He didn't have mantras and things that he said. There's nothing about what he did 
that made the power happen. The power just happened. He said, get out, and the, and the demon went out. So when they say from you in the Greek, that's emphatic. We want to see a sign from you. We want you to do something. That mean, And even when the, the, you know, his robe got touched and the woman got healed, or the centurion asked for his servant to be healed, and Jesus just said, he's healed, Jesus didn't actually have to go there to do it. So the subtlety of God's miracle and power is that it looks almost like Jesus is doing nothing. A good example of this is, okay, every, we have to have one geek example. I, I know I'm getting long, but um, Bruce Lee, martial arts master, was one of the best martial artists in the world. And when they brought him to film, because they're like, we want you to come do film, one of the problems is the film's filmed at so many frames per second and Bruce Lee could punch six times in one second. So what would happen is they would film him doing martial arts, and it would look like he was just standing still. And all the people around him are just dropping like flies. And they would, this is the 70s, when they did martial arts, sometimes people got hit. right? But they were saying, you have to slow down because we want to see you do this. Because he would punch so fast that the frames per second wouldn't catch his, his hands. Later on, when they started to do it, they got higher frame rights in the film industry because they wanted to be able to catch movements. And they had Jackie Chan do one-inch punches or poses after he punched. They'd say, punch, and then hold your pose. And this defined martial arts movies because he was so fast, they actually had to show him punch. so that he would, they would, And they would film it and then show it in slow-mo so the eye could actually capture what he was doing, which started to define it. This is Jesus. There's so much power behind what he's doing, it doesn't even look like he's doing it. Does that like resonate? Now, we want to see a sign and then in the emphatic, from you. We have to, we want to see you move or do something. It looks like, you know, anybody could be doing this. But so this idea of like they want to see it and they want to see it from him, and then it's all about what they want. A lot of times with hard-hearted people, it's always about what they want. It's not about other people. And that's, that's a hard thing for Christians to accept because we often have to soften our heart around that. It's not about me. Matthew writes this as an argument. <laughs> the way Matthew's presenting this is as though the Pharisees are trying to trap him again. Prove that you aren't bad. They're asking him to prove a negative, which is impossible by all logic and reason. Prove that you are good is possible, but Jesus has already proved that, and that's the whole point he just made. I've already shown you. So... In verse 39, when it starts with the word but, um, but he answered and said to them, the evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Again, he starts talking. There was a hinge here that happened. Now he starts talking in parables. And he starts talking in such a way that some people get it, some people don't. So the... they've been judged. It's kind of too late. And Jesus is just not responding to him the same way anymore. You don't see Jesus using logic and reason. He's just saying, I'm done with you guys. Uh, you wanted, you are an evil and adulterous generation. The judgment has happened. You want a sign? You're not going to get it. I'm not here to dance for you. And think of the preposterousness of human beings asking God to do tricks for them. So the healings apparently didn't change their mind. We see, again, miracles do not change people's minds because God's miracles happen subtly. Like, honestly, Lisa, when we started praying for your back, there was no, like, we didn't hear any orchestration music coming from Hollywood. We didn't, no lightning happened at the time that it happened. There was no thunder, nothing. All of a sudden, you just came back a week, week and a half later going, 
my back's better. Same with your friend that got the cancer and all of a sudden I was like, that's how God works. We're supposed to see that and give him the glory when it happens. We're supposed to announce that to people. And then people like these Pharisees are like, well, we want to see that happen. Well, no, you don't get to see. It just happened. Right? We recognize that you don't. That's because you're blind and we see. And th that's how this works. But God's, he answers them, 39, and evil and indulgence. You guys are just evil. You don't get it. And you've already gotten your sign. And the only sign you're going to get going into the future is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Another verse people get hung up on. But I, the context of this is you're too late, Pharisees. You've missed the boat here. Um, the healings aren't going to get you there. Then nothing will. So Jesus backs off the miracles and signs from here forward. He's just not going to do them for the Jews or for the Pharisees. Um, he never did do miracles. I mean, that was the temptation of Satan in the wilderness is do a trick for me. And Jesus denied it then and he denies it now. It's the same thing. So they rejected the evil invitation that he gave. They called him evil. They're not just leaders. They're leaders that have rejected the Lord. Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to people that screw this up and you start calling the works of God bad. You start saying that people meeting as a church is bad, woe to you, watch out. You start seeing that celebrating and singing these praises out loud with your mouths is a bad thing or contagious, woe to you, you're in trouble. That's not a good thing to start claiming. So they make an emotional reaction to him and the truth is offensive to him. We know people like this, right? He calls them an adulterous generation. That hasn't been brought up yet. What are they adulterating against? They're adulteressing because they worship themselves more than they worship God. And the relationship God has with his people is like a marriage. See the Song of Solomon. It's that image of, of, of God making a marriage arrangement. It happened back in Deuteronomy 30. He made a contract with Moses. Remember that? And the contract was a lot like a marriage contract between God and Israel. And at this point, Jesus is declaring a divorce. The only legitimate reason for divorce in the law was adultery. And so Jesus calling them adulterers is saying, I am divorcing from you. Now this is something where some Christians then go way too far and say God isn't precious anymore, that, that Israel isn't precious to God at this point anymore because they're adultery and God's divorced them. That's not true. Uh, oh my goodness, what's, is it Hosea that keeps going back for his adulterous wife? The heart of God is he will go back for Israel until the end of days. And he will call Israel to his home for a long time. But they're going to get separated for a little while. The Holy Spirit's going to start working with Gentiles and redeemed Jews. And the Holy Spirit's going to leave the priesthood of the rabbis alone. And they're going to be devoid of it for a while. So the goal is that we are supposed to cling to God for the length of our days. And the priesthood has not done that. So the sign of Jonah, uh, one of the signs of Jonah is that he's resurrected. Um, he is the image of Jonah is that he was in the belly of a whale for three days. He comes out. Um, when Jesus says the sign of Jonah, Jesus is then, don't miss this, Jesus is calling Jonah's life a prophecy because he's calling it a sign. So in that, he does two things. One, he's saying that Jonah is not a fairy tale. Like Jesus himself sees Jonah as a, a story that, was, that God intervened on to make some things happen. And he says in verse 40, this, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be there three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
with the beginning of Jonah, he's not speaking metaphorically. He's speaking as though it happened. Uh, so I think that's important to know because we've got a lot of people saying that Jonah and Genesis and some of those things are fairy tales. They're not fairy tales. If you're calling them fairy tales, you are in disagreement with Jesus himself because Jesus here validates those stories that God knew we would call fairy tales. So Jonah gives his life to save the sailors. Jesus is going to give his life to save the world. Jonah had that time in the whale, uh, and, and it made the time in the whale and his resurrection from the whale made him legitimate for the Dagon-worshipping Ninevites, the fishman-worshipping Ninevites. Jesus' time in the grave and his resurrection from it makes him legitimate to all of the earth. And, and so you see a lot of comparisons here. Jonah's the only prophet in the Old Testament that went to the Gentiles. Jesus will then do the same thing that Jonah did, and he's going to go to the Gentiles. Um, Jesus, by the way, calls it the great fish. He doesn't say a great fish. I think that's interesting because for me, when I look at Jonah and they try to scientifically find a whale that can fit a human that doesn't quite work, the Bible doesn't claim it was just any old whale. It claims, Jesus' claim is that it was the great fish as though God prepared a particular animal to do this thing with Jonah. So I think that's an important thing to note for us people that love uh, research and, and investigation. Um, but the use there of the fish, not a fish, is, is a big deal. Jesus isn't telling a par parable. He's, telling, he's citing Jonah as a fact, and he believes it's a fact. The point? Jesus is God's sign, and it's, that's all the Jews are going to get. They're going to get Jesus as the sign of Jonah. Um, and he uses two Old Testament examples. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Verse 42, the queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, Solomon and greater and indeed greater than Solomon is here. So we got two examples that Jesus uses from the Old Testament that are kind of the rest of the story kind of things. Those stories, Nineveh, Jonah, and the queen of the south uh, the, that came up and the queen of Sheba that came to Solomon, were both stories in the Old Testament that were meant to point to Jesus because that's how he uses the stories. Jesus illuminates the Old Testament, which has hundreds of these Jesus-pointing passages. It's all over the Old Testament. He picks two um, and says these are people that will rise in judgment as though the people of Nineveh and the queen of Sheba will be are still alive. They're still present because they have eternal life. And they're going to judge these Pharisees that reject Jesus. They had far less than Jesus to come to God than the Pharisees do. And in that, they're going to say, wow, we turned to Jesus with a lot less information. We just had an angry prophet yelling at us, walking through our streets, and we repented. But you got, this, you got Jesus himself healing entire towns, and you didn't. So that's the condemnation. Nineveh is going to rise in judgment. Uh, so will the queen of Sheba. Um, and greater than Solomon is here. When Jesus calls himself greater than Solomon, greater than uh, Jonah, uh, he's again elevating himself because the Old Testament says Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived. So when he says he's greater than Solomon, he's making a claim to being greater than any man when it comes to wisdom. So it's time for God to open up this invitation to the world. Verse 43. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, 
He goes through dry places, seeking rest and finds none. And then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. So it shall be with this wicked generation. Verse 43, again, this is a really tough chapter. We get into a lot of this stuff. It's important to understand that he's talking to a wicked generation and explaining something. So we have to ask, what's he explaining here? Apparently, evil doesn't mind things being nice and tidy and predictable. A in-control synagogue system is nice and tidy and predictable, but that's almost, if the Holy Spirit isn't in it, that's almost more appealing for evil to come into it. Look at the modern church today. Look, frankly, look at 2,000 years of history with the church. You can have a nice, orderly church system that becomes a welcome environment for evil to come in and oppress people. And it happens again and again and again. And the Holy Spirit has to go to another group of people and start something new. And that's what we call revival. And it happens again and again and again. So when the Lord comes in and cleans something out, as he has done with Israel, he gave Israel the law. He gave them prophets. He gave them kings. He gave them revivals. He gave them Nehemiah and Ezra. He gave them Hezekiah. He gave them David. He gave them Solomon. He gave them Samuel. He cleaned out the house. But all that does for evil is it becomes a nice new place to take over. And when he calls them a brood of vipers and he calls them evil, and now he's saying, you are filled with worse than what was here when I called you out of Egypt, that's not good. It speaks to a general principle that our, in our lives, we're working to clean things out of our life. If we don't replace it with the Holy Spirit, we're going to get worse that shows up. This is why new Christians are so precious. And you got to treat them as precious. As they're cleaning out their house, our temptation is to judge what they're cleaning out. But maybe we should let them clean out their house. And what we should be doing as mature believers is encouraging them to fill that with Holy Spirit-filled stuff. Okay, what are you going to put in place of that thing you're getting? It's good that you're getting rid of that stuff, but what are you going to put in place of that? If you're not going to hang out at the bars, you should be hanging out at church. If you're not going to be singing that kind of music anymore, you should be singing this kind of music. Like everything that we do with our hearts should be a replacement kind of thing, or you're making a nice empty house for Satan to come right back into. And then there's even more shame, because if you've come into the kingdom and then you fall back into sin, it's even harder to come back to the kingdom. It's, it's seven times worse. So in that sense, God's not just going to keep cleaning up Israel forever. And that's what's been happening now for 3,000 years. God keeps cleaning up Israel and the demons just keep coming back. So God's not going to just be Satan's housekeeper. Like that's not God's job is to just keep cleaning things up for the enemy. John, 1 John 3.8 says that, we, that the work of God is to destroy the works of the devil. Everything God, the devil has done to wreck lives, God's here to heal that. So there's an actual job to do. So again, you get back to that idea of we got to do heart surgery, and when we do clean out the nasty stuff, you can't go and get, like, stomach surgery and then go right back to Jink and Cherry Coke all the time. There's a point where you just have to stop it and knock it off, and you can't go get things removed from your lungs and then go pick up the cigarettes again. Like, you have to just, if you're going to clean it out, you need to replace it with something better or healthier. So with Christians, we gather, we pray, we study, we see Jesus. We become Jesus freaks. And that becomes a new identity for us that's way better than what we had. So Israel remains precious and loved, 
But God's not going to keep being their housekeepers. And there is a point where God's going to open up this invitation to the whole world because Israel has, not, has failed in so many ways. But it doesn't mean he doesn't love Israel. I think that's the mistake a lot of Christians make when they do replacement theology kind of nonsense. God still loves Israel. It's clear in the book of Revelation. It's clear throughout the Bible that Israel is precious to him, but Israel's adulterous. It keeps leaving, and it keeps having its heart go in new directions. It keeps getting replaced. And I think that's what's going on in verses 43 through 45 in context. So now this is what the sovereign Lord says. What sorrow awaits Jerusalem, the city of murderers? She's a cooking pot whose corruption can't be cleaned out. Take the meat out in random order, for no piece is better than another. This was uh, Ezekiel 24.6. God knew this was going to happen. There would be a point where Israel just can't be cleaned out. There's a time when you just throw that cooking pan because it's so nasty. right? So he's going to build a new kingdom that won't corrupt. It's going to put new wine and new wine stains. And he's going to basically say, if you want to live in my house, you've got to come to my feet, Jesus Christ. So the priests aren't better than the Gentiles. God made both of them. So those that are full of the Holy Spirit don't have room for other dwellers. If you have living water, Jesus is your rest and you are contentment because Jesus just got done saying, I'm the rest, I'm the Sabbath. I love this. If Jesus is giving us the Holy Spirit of water, gives us the rest of his presence, and we can be at peace with God, Think of what an opportunity that is that the Pharisees are just missing right now. But whosoever drinks water that I give I, him shall never thirst. And the water that I give him shall be a well of water springing up into everlasting life, John 4. Matthew 11, come to me and I will give you rest. Matthew 7, ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. You can stop looking. You're going to find what you need. The Pharisees are so anxious to hate Jesus, they have no water, they have no rest, and they can't find what they're looking for. This is miserable. They have dry places seeking rest, and they're going to find none. That's exactly what Jesus just said about the demons. Evil has no water, no rest, and it finds no, it never finds a culmination of its desires. It's always in desire mode. It always wants more. You just bought your brand new truck. Godly people are content with their truck. Evil people just want the next truck, the next model, the next thing. And it just keeps going forever. And there's never contentment or happiness. So it shall be. This evil's going to get more worse. He, Jesus is talking in the future tense here. Um, this is what's going to happen with, with Israel. This is what's going to happen with people that reject him. So Jesus can ta- cast some demons out and God might clean out the house, but the battle isn't over. With Christians, we get saved. The battle's not over after we get saved. It's just beginning. Satan loves it if you're idle and you don't deal with God. But the second you accept Jesus as your Savior and you're going to live for him and give your life to him, the battle's on. This is how it, this, so it shall be. This is what's going to happen. So set the priesthood right. Get it in order. Jesus is going to make a church. He's going to give them quenching. He's going to give them resting. And he's going to give them uh, contentment in what they have. And then the Pharisees say, we want a sign. Right? It, Oh my goodness. So while he was still talking in verse 46, (laughs) don't miss the overlap for this next point that he's going to make. This is part of the same story. Jesus say, this isn't what we want. The Pharisees say, Jesus is what we don't want. And now the worst of it, his own family shows up. 
and I'm, we'll end on this today, this, we'll finish the chapter out. But you got to think, while he was still talking to the multitudes, this is overlapping with the Pharisees. And again, this isn't, and I'm saying that because some people read this and it's like, well, Christians shouldn't care about their families. No, that's, this is while he was still talking, while he's explaining these things, <laughs> he's getting a little out there, like for normal people, like if you don't think he's God, like what is he saying right now? And while he was still talking to the multitudes, look at this, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. We'd like to talk to Jesus right now. While he's talking, this would be as though Katie was be like doing this while we're teaching the word, right? Okay, well, he's busy right now. But then one of it, it's almost like they want to stop him from saying these things. Jesus, we need to talk to you. We need to talk to you now. And they're, they're kind of interrupting him because it's while he was speaking. And then one said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. Likely, it's kind of like, Jesus, you're really ticking off the Pharisees here and you're going to get in trouble. And frankly, you're starting to sound a little bit crazy. Like his own family is saying, you're starting to get a little over the rails with this Jesus stuff. So Mark, Mark 3 tells this story and actually says that they were unbelievers at this time. His family did not believe in him. That's kind of knock against the Holy Mary image that the Catholics have. At this point in time, they don't believe that he's the Messiah because he hasn't sealed it in resurrection yet. Or worse, this family's kind of coming up thinking to themselves, Jesus, all this Messiah, Son of Man, Jesus is Lord stuff, it's a bit too much, Jesus. Like, you're our brother and our son, and you need to back off. So he's ignoring them until somebody actually points it out to him. So there's a full-on interruption of his teaching, and they're still waiting out there. Um, and Jesus is, again, he's always said the kingdom of God is about the heart, and it's about the spirit. So he's going to reinforce that. And, and he, but he answered, and he said to the one who told him, so he's not talking to his family, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand towards his disciples, and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. And whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. I like how he adds sister there. Clearly, Jesus loves his mom and brothers. That is not the point of this passage. It is not saying he doesn't love his, his family. Um, it, it's also like, we should say on the side, Jesus did have a family and he did have brothers and this passage points to that. So when Catholics say that like Jesus had no brothers and mothers, um, he did, and it's right here. Um, it's interesting that they don't get privilege or partiality. It, it is said of Jesus he showed no partiality. He didn't treat people different because they were rich or poor, and he didn't treat people different if they were family or not family. Um, it does imply uh, that his family was really struggling with what he's saying right now because he's parting from the priesthood. He's walking away from the Jewish religious leaders which to some would look like he's, he's walking away from the faith. You know, I'm done with the church is not the same thing as I'm done with Jesus. I'm done with the synagogues is not the same thing as saying I'm done with Yahweh. And so, but, but to his family, that's how they hear this. As you say, you're done with the synagogues and you're calling the Pharisees a brood of vipers and a bunch of evil people. Come on, like back off. You need to stop with this. So Mary is clearly not a deity. We see that here. <laughs> Um, but the priority of who, what Jesus is going to prioritize his time on, this is the work God's called him to do, and there's fruit in it, and it's good fruit, and there's a lot more to do. That's going to get Jesus' time, 
And we see Jesus drawing kind of a boundary here with his family. My family is those who surrender to the new king and the new kingdom of heaven. My brothers and sisters in the faith, this is where we get that language. When we call each other brother and sister, it's because we want to train our minds to think of each other as equals, right? And different, you know, different people in the family have different skills and personalities, but we're not going to show partiality. When we're in the kingdom, this is our, these are our brothers and sisters. So remember this teaching is kind of in the middle of the chapter. He who is not with me is against me, and who doesn't gather with me scatters abroad. That includes his family. So we're baking these points that he's made in, and then verse 50 wraps it up. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. It's super simple. But it doesn't mean he hates his family. It means he wants his family to do the will of the Father in heaven. And that that's more important than anything else. So in the end, he's talked about an evil generation. But in the end, he also talks about a family. And these are the two things. You're either with him or against him. There's an evil generation you're with. Or there's the family of God that you're with. Pick a team, right? You can't play a sport without being on a team. Pick a team. And there's no sidelines, people. He's made that point. Jesus establishes in these verses that there's a new family in the kingdom of God, and it's driven by the Holy Spirit. We have the same Father in heaven. We're in the same family. Gentiles are now grafted into the family. And he's talking to people outside the synagogue. Um, we have an inheritance, Acts 20, 32. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and the word of grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. Who do you get inheritance from? You get an inheritance from your family, right? So our Father gives us an inheritance. And the word in here is this idea that we come together, and it's koinonia. And I, I, I'm going to really briefly cover it. I know we're going long today. But koinonia gets introduced here. It's a Greek word. Uh, it is an amazing word. You got the evil generation, hard-hearted Pharisees over here, but you got koinonia over here. And when he says, whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother, he's establishing a kind of love or an ironic spirit between each other. There's this natural love, fellowship, and family-like affection, right? Lisa's like my mother, like, that's my mother. This is my sister. That's my brother. We're a family because we partake in things together. We partake in communion together. Oops, we forgot that. We partake in worship together. We partake in the study of God's word together. That's our family. And the Old Testament law speaks of breaking koinonia. You same translated word, Leviticus 6.2. The law speaks of breaking fellowship when we steal from one another. So don't do that at church. Don't steal from one another. It's the only mention in the Old Testament, one word. In the New Testament, koinonia is mentioned 43 times. It's an absolute core piece of what the church is. Uh, it is a new kingdom, a new family. We partake together, 2 Peter 1.4. The Holy Spirit's among us, 2 Corinthians 13. Fellowship is what happens in koinonia, Acts 2.42. It's a core part of the church. God gives these gifts in context of koinonia, spiritual gifts, Romans 11:17. So don't think that if you're not in a church, you're going to get spiritual gifts. They happen in the church to edify the church largely and almost always. We also get gifts to evangelize, Philippians 1:5. God uses koinonia, the gathering of people, to be the tool by which he evangelizes. So solo artists don't, aren't mentioned. Uh, it used, the koinonia is used to unite Jews and Gentiles. Koinonia is part of what we do with communion. 
We share in a revelation of God together, 1 John 1, 1 through 7. The study of the Word of God is actually better in koinonia than it is outside koinonia. That's why people say, boy, when I study it by myself, I really struggle. Well, yeah, keep studying by yourself because you're told to do that. But it's always going to be better in koinonia when you have teachers and when we talk about it and when we share it. Um, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us, koinonia, and truly our koinonia is with the Father, it's with the Son, Jesus Christ. Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called children of God. We're all kids of God. We're in the same family. That's what Jesus is saying here, and he's reinforcing it. And he's doing it with his family standing right there. It's an it's a call to his family to come into the kingdom. It's not a rejection of the family. Anybody who serves the Lord God Almighty is in my family. Nobody gets preference over that. So we die to ourselves. We live in Christ. For when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we should be saved by his life. Something replaces what we give up. We give up our life, but we get a new life. Romans 10, 13, for whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. Super. You can be mad at God, idle about God, ignorant of God, or worse, you can blaspheme and reject God, or you can repent towards God, run to God, be in love with God, drink in his spirit, rest in his word, and find comfort in his everlasting arms. Those are the two options. And you'd think in reason, everyone would accept the later option. But then you got these Pharisees, they're not thinking with their heads. They don't think with reasonable thinking. They are lost and fooled in darkness, and they can't see it. So next, Jesus starts a new, he starts a disciple school, and he starts training his disciples to go do what he's been doing. So at this point in Matthew, we've seen it. We've seen the whole plan. We've seen the program. And what we're going to see next is how Jesus trains in his people to go do his work. And that for me is, okay, now we get to the good stuff in Matthew. This is what I want to, I want to be one of his disciples. So if we want to do that, that's what starts in chapter 13 and we'll start moving through Matthew. Amen? Dear Lord, we thank you for what you're doing in our hearts. Lord, I pray that as the Holy Spirit moves today and any day we hear your word, that our Holy Spirit doesn't fight against your word, but we mold to it. Lord, we don't tell the Bible what it says, we listen to what it says. Lord, change us and mold us and make us yours. And Lord, help us to have just sweet, gentle hearts that when we are with each other as brothers and sisters in, in the family of Christ, uh, that we do so, Lord, with a great reverence and respect um, for each other and love for one another. Um, but also, Lord, that we speak to each other in truth, truth and love. Uh, that if my brother is going the wrong way, I got to talk to my brother. Uh, and if my sister needs to tell me something to, to get me on, on path, that I, I can hear that. So, Lord, I pray for koinonia. I pray for your spirit to move amongst us. That that's, we don't need any other sign other than that. That if you can get humans to get along with each other and love one another, your spirit is there. Because we're not scattered. We're on the same page. Uh, Lord, I just, I ask for that koinonia for our Sunday morning group. I ask for it for our Sunday night group. Lord, I pray for it amongst the body of Christ throughout Minnesota and the Midwest. And Lord, I pray for our country. Uh, we have lost koinonia. And what's happening is a deep scattering of souls, uh, a hatred of other people. And Lord, I pray against that, that spirit of Satan, that brood of vipers. Uh, Lord, silence them and quiet them. And may your spirit just grow. And Lord, 
even right down to our biological families, Lord. We pray for them, uh, that they may be scattered too, but bring them into your arms, bring them into your fold. Uh, May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May you have authority here like you do there. Uh, Lord, use us as you would use us, but uh, Lord, change our hearts to be ones of love and grace and care. Bless this food that we're about to eat. Bless the koinonia and fellowship that we have. Bless the discussion around all these huge ideas today. Uh, So bless our time together in fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.